Hello and welcome to The Wrap on Triple R. My name is Areej and it is so nice to be with you again, albeit a little bit difficult. I acknowledge The Wrap is presented each and every week on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge sovereignty never ceded and pay respect to Elders past, present and becoming as well as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening in this morning. It has been an incredibly tough week for Black and First Nations people in Australia, the US and around the world. The murder of George Floyd at the hands of of a white cop in Minneapolis, although a brutal occurrence far away, is a devastating reminder of the worth of black life within the structures of white supremacy. On this show, I speak almost exclusively with black and indigenous artists, organisers, writers, thinkers, musicians, academics from here and around the world, and I exclusively play music by black and indigenous artists. I do this uh, because I love us and I know we're valuable and creative and intelligent and staunch But I also do this because I want us to have a platform to share our work and complaints and triumphs in a sea of what I would consider a white supremacist media landscape. Australian media, Australian politics, Australian schools, Australian justice systems are inherently and violently white supremacist. Australian society is built on white supremacy. White supremacy is not a radical and far-removed movement. It isn't just Nazis or the KKK or even certain fringe political parties that we have here. It is made up of structures that privilege white people and whiteness over the rest of us. It is the reason why our democratically elected Prime Minister had the gall to say on live radio just this week that there's no need to import things happening in other countries here in Australia. Knowing full well since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody in 91, 432 people have died in custody. 432 Indigenous people have died in custody and that is more than one person per month killed in state care. It is why the rhetoric of African gangs in Victoria has meant youth prisons down here are full to the brim with African kids. It's not just about negative media coverage. When people get get over the outrage, Aboriginal people continue to die in custody. They continue to be taken from their families and put into the foster care system in a new wave of stolen generations. They continue to fill up prisons. Aboriginal, Pacific Islander and African young people in Victoria continue to find themselves dealing with the revolving door of the prison system. And in the US, black people continue to die in the streets and in their homes and in prisons at the hands of white police officers and the system of white supremacy. Australia does not need to import anything. We have more than enough to deal with right here. Australia needs to step up. And most importantly, white people in Australia, as a majority and as the group with majority power, have to step up. Do not listen to our music, watch our films, profit from our cultures. If you're not willing to be on the front lines when black people in Australia and around the world fight for their literal fundamental right to life. 
We cannot do anything or make any changes without everyone jumping on board. That includes progressive venues, it includes progressive music labels, it includes progressive festivals and radio stations and community groups. It is so important for all of us to do this together because really there's no way that anything can change if we don't. Hayden Moon is a proud queer Rajri brother boy, an activist and the co-founder of Trans Action Morung. Hayden has written a piece for Junkie titled Australia Must Stop Turning a Blind Eye to Our Own Black Deaths. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. What have you made of the responses in Australia over the last week by what's happening in the in the US? Ah, uh, it's a big question. <laughs> and I think it's been, there's been a lot of emotions. It's been quite disheartening and also quite aggravating for the black community in Australia because, you know, we're seeing a lot of, a, a lot of white people getting really um, emotional about what's happening overseas and some really, really ignorant um, and quite rude comments that are saying, you know, aren't we lucky that this isn't happening here in Australia, which... Is a, is a really big slap in the face to the Aboriginal community because it is happening here and it's been happening for decades and it continues to happen. And we've been trying to, you know, let white people know that it's happening and we just keep getting silenced. So it's it's been quite emotional. Yeah. And what does it mean, you know, when people say they're relieved that Australia is not the same as the US? What is being what is being said in that in that statement? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of a lot of posts and um, a lot of interviews with just ignorant white people, and when when they make these comments, they're saying that violence towards black people and police brutality and death in custody is not happening in Australia. They seem to be under the impression that this is just an American issue and that we have the moral high ground over America, that we're better than America, we're better than the U.S. Um, and, you know, that, that's what they mean by those posts, and it's absolutely incorrect. We, we, we're not any better. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the statistics, police brutality towards Aboriginal people is, is actually higher than it is towards black Americans. Mm. I always think about the education system in Australia and how... Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, walk out of school or walk out of whatever tertiary experience that they have um, with very, very, very little understanding of the basic kind of 101 history of this country. You know, there are, you know, adults who are on the news, which I've watched over the last few days where presenters are, you know, maybe finally starting to realise what's going on in Australia in their 50s, making Mm -hmm. such realisations. And it just seems so confusing that you could live all of these years in this country and not actually know, you know, about invasion, not actually know about genocide, mm-hmm. not actually know about death and custody and the royal commissions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that was something that was quite difficult for me when I, um, you know, when I wrote this article, you know, before writing the article, I posted a thread on Twitter basically explaining um well, I thought was reminding Australians to not forget that it's happening here. I thought that what I was doing was just reminding people. Um, and a lot of the comments that I received on that thread were, oh, my God, I had no idea. Oh, thanks, Hayden, for letting me know. I really didn't know. Um, 
thanks for opening my uh, my eyes to this. Um, thank you for for telling us about this. And that was really mm-hmm. such a strange occurrence for me as an Aboriginal person because it's not something that I can escape. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that the Aboriginal community knows about and lives with every day. And I don't think I know. Actually, I definitely don't know one Aboriginal person who doesn't have connections to either related to or is friends with a family that has lost someone, you know, to police brutality or has been affected by violence inflicted by police. And it was just, um, yeah, it was absolutely shocking to me that what I thought was common knowledge was something that white Australians just had absolutely no idea about. And it's really upsetting that this isn't being taught in schools and that this isn't something that's you know, being spread by the media because it absolutely should be and all Australians should know about this issue. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's like it's like there are like two two versions of Australia that exist. Um and that some people live in one world and some people live in another and it's very, very hard to penetrate. Um and once you know you can't unknow, right? Um and it's very difficult to to go back to wherever that was that you thought Australia was but Australia is but when you don't know it is so easy to remain completely ignorant it's you know there's you can remain that way for your entire life yeah absolutely and um you know it's that in itself is just such a display of white privilege really the fact that you know white people have that capacity and have that ability to be ignorant, that they, you know, they can be ignorant for their whole lives because they're not being personally affected by this stuff. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of posts from Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal people saying, like, oh, I, I wish I could be that ignorant. I wish I didn't have to know about all this stuff. And it's absolutely correct. And, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have that option to, to not know about this stuff because it's happening um, and since we don't have that option, neither should white people because it's just, you know, it's just a, a display of the privilege that they hold, that they don't have these experiences and they need to know about it and they need to talk about it and they need to be confronted by it. Mm. And they also need to be part of the movement, right? There's, you know, white people in Australia make up a majority um, and mm. not just of the population but a majority of power, right, almost complete, almost absolute power in this country. And so it is very, very difficult to move anything really. You know, you could have royal commissions and there have mm-hmm. been royal commissions. You could have, you know, coronial inquests and there have been and yet things move you know, very slowly or in some or in some instances move backwards. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's that's exactly, you know, the reason why, you know, uh, the reason why myself and other Aboriginal people are posting about this. And, you know, we're trying to get white people to listen and to share our posts and to share our articles and to share what we're saying, because that's exactly right. White Australians are the majority and we need them. You know, we, we only make up 3% of the population. We can't, we can't get our voices listened to without your support. You know, so we, we need white Australians to be sharing our stuff, to be listening to us and be actual allies you know, not this performative ally stuff that people are doing. Like, don't just post a black square on Instagram and think that you're helping the black community because you're not. You have to actually share what we're saying, listen to what we're saying, amplify our voices, get us heard, get us mm-hmm. out there, support us, give us the microphone and then step back and let us speak. Yeah. You know, we need you. We need white Australians to do that for us. That's how we're going to get our message across. 
Yeah. And donate, right? Put your money where your mouth is. Use the privilege and use the, mm-hmm. the power to put your money where, the, where people need it. It's not cheap to pay for funerals. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not cheap to to deal with all of the legal issues that relate to the criminal justice system in Australia. Um, and if you have the funds, there are hundreds of organisations that you can donate to. Um, Hayden, how are you going? How's it going for you this week? It must be an emotionally taxing and exhausting time. Yes. Um, yeah. To just to reply to what you said before. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Donate. Uh, donate to. Um, to the resources that if you read the junkie article, I've put a bunch of um, of campaigns that you can donate to. Um, and one of them is Free Her, which is paying for bail for incarcerated Indigenous women. So that's a really good place to put your money is to help get Indigenous people out of prison um, and absolutely donate to the families who've lost loved ones in custody um, and just do what you can, especially if you're white, just, you know, share that money and exactly like you said, put that put your money where your mouth is. Um, and yeah, as, as for how I'm going, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's been a big, big week. Um, honestly, I'm just exhausted and the entire Aboriginal community is exhausted because, you know, we have been fighting this fight for so long and it's we're only just now starting to be listened to by some people and even still there are people who you know we'll talk about our experiences as black people in this country and then we have a white person say to us that's not true mm. um which is you know like oh because you know more about what we're going through um so you know you have the exhaustion of having to constantly educate white people about your own community and the the things that you're going through and then you have the racist white people coming after you and absolutely gaslighting you and telling you that what's happening isn't true um so yeah we're all just we're all just exhausted i'm i'm exhausted um but i'm also you know in saying that like yes there's sadness and there's exhaustion and there's anger there's a lot of anger but there's also a, a, a feeling of like joy mm. that people are listening, you know, seeing the fact that my article is being shared around and people are reading it and people are donating and people are following those campaigns and, you know, people like yourself are reaching out to me for interviews because people want to talk about this. Mm. That makes me really happy. So, you know, there, there are negatives to the situation, but at the same time, there are these great, great positives that are coming out of it. The fact that people are listening, the fact that people are engaging, the fact that people are are wanting to share black voices and to listen to us. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of both, really. Hayden, thank you so much for your time and your patience and the work that you're doing and for joining me on the show today. It has been really insightful and, um, you know, I think that in the current climate and the fact that, you know, people are not necessarily gathering, there are also big protests that are happening around the country and there are ways mm. for people who are able to be part of that to join in and really, you know, put themselves and put their bodies on the line. And and um, I'm just thankful to you for your time. Oh, I'm, I'm thankful for you for having me. Thank you for, um, for talking to me this morning. Thanks, Hayden. See ya. Hayden Moon is a proud queer Wiradjuri brother boy and activist and the co-founder of Trans Action Morang. Hayden wrote a piece on Junkie titled Australia Must Stop Turning a Blind Eye to Our Own Black Deaths. 
go and read the piece and also have a look at the resources underneath the article. It will give you links and names of people who have been fighting for so long and organisations that have been working hard. Sisters Inside is one that Hayden just mentioned. The Free Her campaign is so important. You know, there are families of those people who have died in custody, who were killed in custody, um, who need funds, right, need funds to deal with the legal ramifications, need funds to deal with the fact that they've lost a, a loved one. And so definitely put your money where your mouth is and, and support First Nations peoples um, in their struggle and in their attempts to really have their voices heard and have their lives valued. Danielle K. Kilgo is um, an assistant professor of journalism, equality and diversity at the University of Minnesota and has written a piece um, about how the media's framing of the unrest in Minneapolis will shape the public's view of protests. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hey, I just want to kind of start with possibly a broader a broader question about how local media or, you know, media in the United States has been portraying the protests in Minneapolis. Right. Okay. So um, so, so basically, I, I, the protest coverage looks a lot like the protest coverage we've seen in the past. It is um, emphasizing the protesters' actions. It, has, it mentions the murder of George Floyd, but doesn't really put into context why, why this is more than one incident, why this, is, why this is a systemic issue, an institutional issue. Um, it really sort of minimizes the demands and agendas of, of social movements that work on this issue all the time, mm. um, even when there's not a specific event that's happening. And it emphasizes instead, you know, protesters' actions, them getting arrested, um, you know, the damage that is being done. There are some unusual, I mean, this protest is unusual. It's just got unusual circumstances. We have Trump, uh, President Trump, um, uh, in really adding in some racist and watchdog politic-like mm-hmm. um, commentary about protesters. We have COVID-19, you know, yes. as we were all sheltering at home, and then all of a sudden the U.S. opened up, and now also we have these massive protests. So there, there's this conversation about the pandemic and protests, and a lot of blame going to protesters or potential for to blame them in the future. Um, and then we have the police, which are now engaging in um, sort of provoking violence among protesters. And, and really, it's one of the first times I've seen significant coverage of police behavior in protest. Um, a lot of times it's just sort of confined to simple police and protesters clash mm-hmm. or police arrest protesters. So um, it's a lot of the same, but there are really some unique differences that are um, uh, because of the situation that we're in globally. For people who are not on the ground, right, and for people who might not have a sense of how these kind of protests run, the media and the news coverage, and in the United States there is many news channels that are just rolling 24-7 news from from different, you know, perspectives and different areas of the country. So for those who are not on the ground and may not have a sense of what's going on, the media is really their introduction, their body and their conclusion. It is their everything when it comes to their exposure to the to the protest. How powerful is that? 
I, it's, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, the media shapes the public opinion about the protests, uh, even for some protesters, right? Because mm-hmm. what we know is that most people don't go protest. What we see is that a lot of people on the street, but that's really not encompassing our society. So uh, pretty much everything you know about any protest is, is what you see from the media. And when you're in a protest or you're at a protest it, um, and you're in a group of people, it's kind of like being at a concert. Can mm-hmm. you see every piece of what's going on? <laughs> and the answer is no. And so still, when... When I've gone to a protest to talk with protesters, you know, I've come home and, and seen how many views and angles and things that I that I missed. And, you know, social media gives us sort of a front seat to different angles, which is helpful, too. But the media then plays this really important and powerful role in framing public opinion about this and, um, and shaping it uh, and shaping public support. You mentioned in your piece that the Women's March and anti-Trump protests gave voice to protesters um, and significantly explored their grievances, but that's not what we're seeing right now. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Sure. So these uh, massive protests, which which did have, uh, in the year that I studied in was 2017, so this is the presidential inauguration of, of Trump and the Women's March, this is right after that inauguration, and um, both of these had some arrests and had some violence, but for the most part, the emphasis of the coverage was on, you know, the the hats that were sewn and mm-hmm. the crazy stuff that people would write on, um, crazy as in just sort of dramatic things that they would write on um, uh, signs. But there was a lot of attention to why the women were there at the Women's March, to why people had had uh, grievances about the, the Trump presidency. And so... Um, uh, when you go and you look at that and you compare it to what happens with anti-black racism and indigenous racism protests, anti-indigenous indigenous racism protests, um, you just see that that's absent, that, that people are expected to know what the grievance of racism is or that they just don't, journalists just don't include that in the, in the coverage at all. And that's really traumatic and problematic for these protesters who are so routinely trivialized, and also are stereotypically sort of associated already with, with violence and riots. It's amazing because um, in Australia what you're saying rings absolutely true because there were even times here where there would be these big protests for, um, you know, a death in custody or, um, you know, like Indigenous rights protests, and they would you know, it would be clear that there was, you know, however many thousand people at the protests and the media would actually even belittle the number of people who came out. And so often people consider the media in this objective way, but, you know, there is a lot of active misinformation that's happening around the world and the impacts of that really spread, don't they? They do. They do. And, you know, this this paradigm, we call it the protest paradigm, um, that the protester marginalized by the media or, or delegitimized, it, it is a global phenomenon, and it, and it does happen to affect issues that don't have these closed and defined and exact parameters on them. So in the, in the United States, like, there's still this, there's a huge debatability about racism, like what it is, how it is, if it is or not. It's really hard to get people to, to it's really hard to get some people, I should say, to want to put parameters on that word that are inclusive of people's perspectives and experiences. And unfortunately, journalism is one of those institutions that sort of still doesn't have clear lines about what to talk about it. And so so instead, they talk about protesters' actions, because that's a little bit easier for them to achieve um, 
you know, objectivity and to achieve the norms and practices that journalists undertake to try to to try to create balanced work. Um, so a lot of it is some of it is personal bias for sure, but a lot of it is also just the the way we teach journalists around the world to create and produce news. Yeah, and even more broadly, like the race, like racial literacy around different around these different communities in Australia, it is still you know people are talking a lot about these protests here right now. And if you lived here, you would watch the news every single day, and there's just rolling coverage of what's happening in the United States. And only in the last couple of days has there been a sense of what's happening, what happens in Australia, right? And so um, there are journalists who've been working in the area for you know the you know, who are 50 years old or 40 years old or however old, who are now making the realisations and making the connections that racism happens in Australia live on air. And it is a an unbelievable spectacle, an unbelievable experience when you're sitting down and watching this. And you're like, how have you, how have you lived your whole life making that realisation as a journalist, right? You know, it's different right. if there are different people in different parts of society, but as a journalist, um, making that realisation now just seems so odd to people. Right. I mean, we, we have the same thing happening here, so um, in solidarity. <laughs> um, but, you know, we um, here, a lot, the, one of the big questions that a lot of people are asking is, what can white people do, you know, as allies? And, you know, my very first answer is almost always, pick up a book and yeah. read about all of the all of the people who have said that racism exists in this way and this is how you can see it and this is how you can visualize it because um do, as a as a myself as a um as a community member of a marginalized group i know the the cost and the weight of having to explain that to every single person around me mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um i you know it's really important that people pursue racial literacy and they pursue these subjects it's it's the other thing I, I've been telling journalists a lot is to, to know that the, if it's news to you, it's probably news to a lot of people. Journalists right. tend to be smart. Media mm-hmm. makers are smart a lot of times, most times. Um, but, you know, if it's news to, to an individual, if it's an awakening for you, it could be awakening for someone else. And so these things can be news and they can have value. Um, so um, it's really important to see and include and, and, of course, build your cultural competency over time. It's amazing because um, there are so many journalists who are black, who are Indigenous, who are people of colour, who are from marginalised communities, um, and yet, you know, they don't find themselves a lot of the time in these newsrooms that are often overrun by white journalists. What does diversity within um, the media, what kind of role does that play when it comes to this stuff? Yeah, so, I mean, our the, the media is um, incredibly disproportionately um set up, the, the news are overwhelmingly white, and it, and it shows. I think for, you know, for me, if you want to know what a black editor would look like at the New York Times, you'd turn to the black press here in the United States, and you'd look at them as an archetype. And this is a place where a lot of people consider this just activist or ethnic media. Um, it has different labels that people give it. But really, what what these presses do is center the black experience mm. in the United States and beyond. And they, by centering them, you're able to include their voices. Um, by having a mixed newsroom, one that actually balanced out the um, 
the diversity of the United States, there's more opportunity to avoid the missteps that an all-white or all-black or all-woman or all-male um, newsroom might make because they don't have other perspectives in the room. Um, so, you know, the, the adding diversity to our newsrooms just adds more people to have the same conversation with. Newsroom journalists don't work in asylum. They don't work all the way alone. But everything gets touched by someone else. And having different eyes with truly different perspectives, especially when it comes to social issues and the, the identities that make up um, how we see and interpret the world, uh, it, it can really be... Um, life-changing and, and, and industry-changing to have the diversity that's representative of the community so journalists serve. Mm. And what about the, like, strategic language that is used? In, in Australia, there has been a lot of, you know, we were watching commercial television news at my house the other night just to kind of see what was happening out there. And the, the reporter, the Australian journalist who was on the ground, was... Um, constantly calling protesters criminals and thugs and and rioters and all of these words and all of this language, um, you know, what does the difference in language and the kind of different perspectives in that and the way it's weaponized? how does that impact um, the conversation? Right. So, I, I mean, riots is a word that is associated with black protest, civil rights protests generally uh, across the board um, globally a lot of times. And, and that word is very loaded. This is one of those watchdog politics because it primes people to automatically associate a particular cause or movement with violence. So equality then becomes the, or the want or need for for equality in our society then becomes associated with violence through the form of protest, and, and that's not helpful. <laughs> mm. um, the, the criminals and thugs comments that have been made, uh, both by politicians and by, by journalists, I mean, these are, these are very coded and um, uh, stereotypical language that are dangerous. I mean, riot is uh, a word to describe you know, unruly lawlessness for sure, but criminals and thugs are, are words that are coded to um, criminalize and add to the stereotypical representations that have contributed to our system of oppression for people of color mm. through all systems. And so um, definitely, uh, you know, for journalists to use them, it's it's saying something. It's, it's saying there's a lack of cultural competency at, at a baseline, but also they don't support the protest and or they don't support the cause or they can't see it as legitimate. And and really as a journalism professor, my calls for journalists are not to not to make people support the protest. People can, you know, form their own opinions about things, but but when there's, you know, thousands of people out on the street that are giving up their sleep or leaving their children at home and giving up their dinner after work they're not doing that for fun. Right. They're, not, they're, not, they're not standing out in crowds of sweaty people facing off the cops because they think it'll be a fun family activity at the end of the day. They're doing that because they really feel in their heart that they're, and in their body and they've seen with their eyes that there is a injustice that has not been taken care of by other legal processes in our world. And so, you know, it is important and it is imperative for journalists to make them at least have that legitimacy. They're out there for a reason. This is what that reason is. Um, 
And then once you know, once you can remember that they're out there for a reason and that's what they're, it's really hard to call them criminals. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to call them thugs, right? Because the, because you're able to see and empathize with that perspective. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's really the, the, the only way to get around it is just to remember and to report and to remind your audiences that, you know, people are out there for a grievance that they can see and feel. I am going to ask you probably the million-dollar question, possibly the impossible question, but how do we change this and these systems of media in these countries that we live in? Because everything that you're saying right now reflects almost identically here in Australia. And it is actually, you know, there are probably less, there are probably smaller Um, you know, independent media institutions. I'm presenting this show on a community radio station, um, but it is almost completely volunteer run. And, you know, there are are some limitations, but how do we make a difference and how do we change these institutions, this institution of of what we consider, you know, the fourth estate? Yeah, as a media maker, I mean, I would you know, always remember that there are norms and there are routines and there are sometimes even rules, but they can change, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that you ha- have to have these discussions to get them to change. And I have been having this discussion with journalists for about five years and have sort of been met with a wall. Um, and, you know, this opportunity, if it's going to bring anything good, it, it is that, you know, people are open to having the conversation. They're more open to expressing, oh, I actually saw that too, and I thought it was kind of bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Journalists, you know, are a little protective of their, of the media that they make, and I understand that you, you it's hard to be critiqued. Um, uh, but I think we have to have these conversations. And, you know, at a broader level, what can our communities do and our societies do? I mean, Turn the channels and and bring your own critiques and create media that calls out um, you know problems that gives your perspectives about you know what they called they called this a riot but it wasn't a riot and I would like for you to to amend that mm-hmm. to let news organizations know because there there some news organizations do have protocols for acknowledging when they make mistakes and maybe they will. Um, without a community there to tell journalists what they're doing wrong. They will not think that they're doing wrong. Yeah. They do not have time to do what we would call called postmortems, where they look at, you know, an event is over, so they sit in their newsroom all together and um, and look at their coverage and decide what they could do better. They don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that was about the time that they still smoke cigarettes in newsrooms and, <laughs> and on airplanes. But, you know, they don't have time to do that anymore because our news cycle is so demanding at every level, not just the broadcast level, but social media has made every journalist be always on all the time. And so, you know, it it really does take the community feedback to do that for them. They don't always listen, but it's definitely worth the time and the effort that it takes to try to get your voice out there and to make a change. Danielle, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. I know it is a really intense time for you out there. I hope you're looking after yourself and your community and I hope that your everything that we've spoken about today comes out and comes into fruition and we live in a more just world where um, people's stories and people's lives and lived experiences are not undermined and, and erased. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Stay well. 
Danielle Kilgo is a professor of journalism, equality and diversity at the University of Minnesota and has written about how the, fra- how the ma- media's framing of the unrest in Minneapolis will shape the public's view of protest. You can check out her article. It is on The Conversation. It's titled Riot or Resistance, How Media Frames Unrest in Minneapolis Will Change Public's View of Protests. But I want to give a big, big thanks and shout out to all of the folks who've come on the show today. Big thanks to Hayden Moon, a proud queer Wiradjuri brother boy and activist and co-founder of Trans Action Morang. Please go read their piece on Junkie. It's titled Australia Must Stop Turning a Blind Eye to Our Own Black Deaths. And please check out the resources at the end. Also big thanks to Danielle K. Kilgo, Assistant Professor of Journalism, Equality and Diversity at the University of Minnesota for speaking with me about a piece she's written for The Conversation. It is titled, titled Riot or Resistance, How Media Frames Unrest in Minneapolis Will Shape Public's View of Protest. Go do your research. Go do your homework. Put your money where your mouth is. Support organisations. And also a big, big thanks to Caucasian Opportunities and Manchild for that back-to-back mix. It definitely had me dancing and feeling good. I'm thankful for black artists for their work and insistence of being really badass and active and persistent and amazing. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Rap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nation's land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.